0: Welcome to Surviving Academia, a podcast about surviving in the pre-apocalyptic housecape of the academy.
1: In each episode, we share self-care techniques and talk about surviving in academic careers.
2: We hope you enjoy this episode. If you like what you hear and want to support our show, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Got something to say? Let us know on Twitter, at SurvivingPhD, or on Facebook.
0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's episode. I am Rachel, and I've only killed one plant
1: this winter so far. I'm Kristen, (laughs) and I'm convinced I am going to freeze to death a graduate student in the Midwest.
2: That's a real concern.
1: (laughs) Uh,
2: My name is Zach, and I'm thinking about quitting the Academy to start my own podcasting empire. Oh, are you? Could possibly be more lucrative. Can't be less lucrative, could it?
0: Well, I I would like to propose that you start this empire by signing on a, an awesome podcast that I've recently heard called Surviving Academia.
1: It's potentially oh. award winning.
0: It may or may not be number fifty one on Apple Podcasts of higher education because you know the list didn't go that long; it only went to fifty, so we could be fifty one. Yeah, it could we
2: be. Could we could
0: be. Yeah, we
2: are awards eligible 2019.
0: Exactly. Awards (laughs) eligible. I like it. You hear that, Academy? (laughs) Not only are we surviving, we are thriving. Thriving.
1: (laughs) So this episode is brought to you by Unicorns. Everyone loves unicorns, which is why you can't have them. Grants, (laughs) awards, tenure track jobs, all sparkly, fantastical rainbows of unicorns. So tape a horn to your forehead and forge ahead. Unicorns are as real as your power to believe. Oh,
0: great! I
2: believe.
0: I believe in unicorns and in tenure track positions.
2: Uh, well, I believe in one of those things.
0: I was about to say, I think unicorns may be a little more prominent right now.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's I think a good segue into our topic for the day, um, which is about quitting. And uh, I talked to you guys about this beforehand, and you're like, "What do you mean by quitting?" And I like, "We're supposed well, to
1: be surviving." Yeah.
2: Yeah, I know, but quitting can be a form of surviving if you find something that is healthier for you to do outside of the academy. That is um, indeed true. And, yeah, and when when you guys uh, asked me what I meant by quitting, I decided to come up with the, uh, you know, just the most stereotypical um, uh, way of thinking about it, which is. You know, when you enter the academy, a lot of people think that there's a path that directly leads, you know, from first year of graduate school to landing a tenure track job, getting tenure and and so on and so forth. So to me, quitting is some sort of deviation from that ideal in any form. Mm. And I think a lot of people think about that. How often do you guys uh, think about um, finding a different route?
0: I wouldn't say I think about it all the time, but I have thought about it. I I think as alternate uh, ACK, like alt-ACK or don ack becomes a part of um, graduate ed- education a little bit more, we think about it. I know when I was a graduate student, those conversations were starting to really happen. And um, actually, I've been starting to think about it a little bit more recently as a friend of mine and I have been talking about uh, her potential quit quote unquote quit of academia and so i would say i don't think about all the
1: time it's been on my mind a little bit more recently
2: yeah yeah what about you Kristen?
1: so for the most part with my graduate career i i really have never felt like quitting until last semester really yeah so like all last fall was i don't know it was just like a really rough just felt like I just didn't have motivation and nothing I was doing was working. And it was really the only time where I was like, I do not like this anymore. I did Mm -hmm. not want to do this anymore. And so I don't know. I really didn't touch my dissertation at all over break. Um, And I let myself sort of like not feel bad about it and stress about it. And so I actually feel really great right now. I feel really like much more energized, much more motivated, much more optimistic But yeah, last semester was by far probably my roughest semester, which is kind of interesting because that's when we started this podcast. So it was like kind of in the middle of this like crisis I was kind of having. And I think forcing ourselves to do self-care even for the podcast, like was like some of my own like self-care that I was doing for myself because it it was like, oh, there was like an expectation I had to do X, Y, Z. And so...
2: Kristen, yeah. are you saying that doing this podcast has saved your career?
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> My graduate student career is saved. <laughs> <laughs> and well, that's I'm, why we're, like, number potentially 57 on I mean, the hot. We could be number 62. Like,
0: <laughs> if only that list that we read randomly had more than 50 on it. I mean.
1: I think we should just start advertising that we're, like, number 62 on the charts. <laughs> I know. Really popular podcast, Rising in the Charts, last week they were 52, and now they're 51, potentially.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I, I know what you mean, and I, I, I understand. I, I felt very much like quitting when I was dissertating and it did eventually go away but I don't know I I always think we're we're kind of we're conditioned in graduate school to go from you know this step to this step to this step to tenure track job if you don't get that you're a failure but I know plenty of people who have left the academy who are making very good money and very happy and I see lots of people in the academy who are also very very happy but then I see those people who are miserable and um, makes you think a little bit about what is what are the most important things in life how do we balance those and is there only one path to take right mm-hmm. right now the three of us are currently surviving academia but you know it's not like if we decided to go a different path we'd be any less of awesome people you know True.
2: yeah I mean I when I was in graduate school I thought about quitting at least once a semester um, and part of that was that I think uh, I worked, I, you know, I, work, I taught uh, two to four classes outside of my appointment as a graduate student. And so I was, I mean, everybody's busy, but I had all these outside expectations as well. Um, and I thought that if I, if I quit, I wouldn't be able to you know, have that sort of guaranteed income because you know, the department guarantees you know, several years of income as long as you're making progress. So I felt like my economic security would be compromised. And, uh, also like I got, you know, two or three years in and like, why start this if I'm not going to finish it, you know? Uh, and so I, I look at, uh, you know, what you're, what we're talking about with the, uh, the, you know, aiming for a 10 year track job and it's just not possible for everybody to get that. So from the vantage point of where I am now thinking about quitting, you know, I already have the PhD, so the thing about quitting does mean giving up that dream of a tenure track job, which I'm not willing to do. I am on the market and I am actively searching for full-time employment, but I also need to be considering what else will this PhD get me? And that's that's another dimension of why uh, quitting didn't seem fully uh, fully appealing is because I don't think a lot of the skills that I got during my PhD have wide marketability, like not a lot of private sector jobs uh, look for sociologists and maybe, maybe they're hidden in a few places and I can, I can do a better job of finding them, but I just don't know that the, the knowledge that I gained during my PhD is something that uh, our market economy has a demand for. Um, mm. It's something that is valuable to people who love knowledge um and have you know interests within my realm but nobody's gonna pay me to to do it (laughs) and outside of the academy Mm,
1: maybe maybe not yeah i think you're wrong about that but i also like don't have like a great like answer for you but i do think a lot of the skills that we get are very like marketable and transferable i think the issue is is that we're not really taught how to sort of utilize that in the best way and how to market ourselves And so that's kind of a problem as well. I think a lot of times, especially at universities like that, we're at, you know, R1, but kind of the, you know, we're not like super high up on the R1. um, Yeah,
2: we're not Harvard or Yale. Shout out to Harvard and Yale.
1: (laughs) Sponsored by. Just kidding. (laughs) They don't need our help. Um, But I think like, you know, our professors you know, we're taught in a certain way and are teaching us in a certain way. And a lot of times that isn't about other jobs in that you could possibly get because they didn't get other jobs that way. Like they went right back into the Academy as well. So I think there's like this, like sort of cyclical thing that is happening where there might be some really great opportunities. We just have not been trained to find those.
0: I would agree. Um, This idea that, the skills taught to you in a PhD program are highly transferable, but we are not equipped with the language uh, with which to apply them Mm -hmm. to jobs outside of um, academia. And I know that there are movements to change that, um, but you're right, our faculty were taught a way that are teaching us a certain way, and as we become faculty, we are teaching a certain way, and it's, They're teaching
1: what they know which is fine but it also like doesn't necessarily help people who are wanting something that is different than what they've been the academy that they've been taught in
2: yeah that was fully my experience as well was that all of my advisors the expectation was that i would be like them and in the the route that they took and and be seeking a job like what they sought uh, after my program and it I, I don't even know how to, uh, like, I don't know who I would have gone to to say, okay, what can I do if I'm not going to be a professor? You know, I don't know where I would have gone at my university to get mentorship for that question.
1: I've also heard from other grad students even, even like, wanting to, like, be careful about saying you want to go to a community college or be careful about saying you want to go to a private school. Like, even within the place that we are trained, sometimes even that is, like, not seen as, like, good enough or or that it's sort seen of thing.
0: It's as, like, failure. Yeah. Quitting equates to failure in a way that's really problematic because what if you never wanted that career choice to begin with? Like, what mm-hmm. if you went into a PhD program not wanting a tenure-track position? What if you wanted it so that you could use those skills elsewhere? If But – and you could avoid that the entire time mm-hmm. that you've been in the program. But if you don't go into the clear career track, then it is seen as quitting or failure. And the failure connection there to quitting um, is what I think is really problematic because it limits what we're able to do. It limits what would make, potentially make someone happy um, and give them the most joy in their life because they're either pressured or feel pressured to remain in a certain path. You know?
2: Mm-hmm. So, on that note, talking about, uh, you know, air quotes uh, failure uh, for diverting from that ideal, uh, I actually conducted an interview uh, in service to uh, this episode um, with uh, Dr. Rebecca Schumann, who is a uh, quote unquote quitter, uh, but talking to her about her decision to leave um, and her life uh, post uh, the. Post, uh, pursuing that tenure track ideal. And she, I think, has had it, you'll hear in the interview, a little bit uh, harder than, than even us uh, being in the field of German. But I'll, I'll go ahead and set up, I got I wrote a, a, an intro for her because I think she deserves an intro. Uh, she's a really uh, dynamic and awesome person. Uh, so the intro goes as such, Rebecca Schumann is perhaps one of the most famous post-academics in the US today from her writings from Slate. Uh, She has a Ph.D. in German from the University of California, Irvine. Side note, that's where my sister also got her Ph.D. Uh, She has written professionally for the aforementioned Slate, The Chronicle of Higher Education, and other dark recesses of the Internet. In 2017, she released her first book, Schadenfreude, A Love Story, about the hilarious oddities of translating the German language, which has received numerous accolades most important qualification for being on the Surviving Academia podcast is that when I reached out to her, she said yes. (laughs) So uh, why don't we bump to that interview right now? Um, So thanks for agreeing to do this interview with me.
3: I'm sorry I was such a pain in the ass about it I really don't usually I'm not usually a pain in the ass about stuff it's just I have a lot going on right now and it's it's been a little hard to juggle everything
2: no no worries I I totally get that that actually I kind of want to ask you a question about that because you know I think a lot of people like in their like ledger of considering whether they want to be an academic or not academic and like look at the like what someone on the tenure track has to do, and how much time they have to put in, how little personal life they have. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, did you expect to be as busy as you were as a consequence of, of um, you know choosing to go a different direction?
3: Well, first of all, I think that um, the idea that people on the tenure track don't have any time for personal stuff is largely a myth and if it exists at all it's a result of poor time management um you know i work with a lot of people on the tenure track and i help them make their schedules and they all have plenty of time for a personal life so um i would adore the luxury of having my child in paid daycare for seven to eight hours a day where i had like seven to eight consecutive hours to work i could do an immense amount of time <laughs> an immense amount of work in that time i could do an unfathomable amount of work in that time
2: um well that's you know, that's something first... that's regardless of of sorry i interrupted you um, yeah, regardless that's, of profession yeah.
3: yeah um so when you work for yourself and you work from home and you have a family you're never not working um, every second that somebody, because time is money. And so every second that you're, somebody else is watching your child, especially if it's somebody who you don't have to pay, you feel like you have to be you know, getting the things done that you have to, done, have to get done. The other thing that's very difficult about working freelance is that um, you're never just doing one thing. You're always completing a lot of different things for a lot of different entities and people all the time. So you have to be immensely together at scheduling and keeping track of who gets what. And then you have to spend a considerable amount of your time chasing money too, because amazingly enough, people are good at following up on invoices to varying degrees. And so some people pay right away, some people don't. And uh, you essentially have to live your life two or three months out. You have to have the money that you need for the month that you're in and expect the money for the work that you're doing now to come two or
2: three months. So, uh, um, I know you've written about that. You really enjoy teaching, but that mm -hmm. it just, it just doesn't reward you in the financial ways in the same, in the same way that it, you know, like it's fun to teach, but it doesn't always, you know, pay the bills.
3: Yeah, I would be, I mean, teaching is immensely rewarding. It's probably what I do best. And, um, I miss it greatly. Uh, My husband is a non-tenure track professor here at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, and so I get some vicarious things from, you know, his courses. We talked about his job, and so I still am a little bit in that world, but I miss it really badly. Um, Right now, I am on the market again for full time positions, not necessarily only tenure track positions, um, but full time positions and in the creative writing field, in addition to the German field. And so um, there still aren't really any. And so my chances of getting one are as low as they always were. Yeah, I'd love to go back to teaching, but only in a capacity that was either full time or at an institution that compensated its adjuncts well.
2: Well, so either, either a unicorn or a unicorn, right? Exactly.
3: (laughs) Unfortunately. um, And it's really a shame because I'm very good at, at teaching and
2: I really, really,
3: um, it's, it's a very important part of my life and it's something that I uh, have both a talent and a drive to do. So it's, it's sad that I'm not able to do it right now.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that, uh, I mean, and I feel the same way. I love I love teaching and it, it just doesn't, you know, it's been tough to have that pay the bills.
3: Absolutely. Um, How many courses are you adjuncting right well, now? Well,
2: I'm just teaching two um, mm-hmm. and they're in person okay. and they're immensely rewarding and my students are brilliant. Um, that's great. But uh, the only way that that's possible is I am crashing with a friend and he's not charging oh me rent for the year um, and I'm working a freelance job on the side.
3: That's just a shame. I mean, it's just a ridiculous shame that that's what, that's the kind of life. I mean, I'm sure that you make a good life for yourself. It wouldn't work, however, if you had children. No, um,
2: absolutely. That's the only it's reason a, I can do that is I'm a single single person.
3: Yeah, but it's just ridiculous that this is how institutions expect the people who, the people who their students are going to remember the most, the people who are going to be the most influential and change the most lives are given the least amount of compensation and consideration. And it's, you know, because, and I say this, knowing full well that universities employ all manner of poorly employed staff, but adjuncts tend tend generally to make a worse hourly wage than the hourly
2: staff. Yeah, and I I will say one more thing about myself, but then uh, I wanna keep talking about your experience, uh, which is that I also, when I was in my PhD program adjuncted online um and taught between two and four classes every semester for five years. yeah, um, and that well, and that is also what makes this year uh, of ad just adjuncting at one place possible is I managed to save up quite a bit of money in in grad school that I think other people were would not be able to have done.
3: That was but really it, smart.
2: Yeah, but it also meant that I took six years instead of five.
3: That's not. That's still. I know people who had no responsibilities who took longer than that. So that's
2: yeah, still.
3: Yeah. That's still grad school short. Everyone.
2: That's yeah. and I don't have fast. any. Yeah, and I don't have any publications, which is also kind of a hindrance. <clears throat> but uh, that's so, super great. Yeah. So I wanted to to go back. We we talked about where you are now. Um, and and you know loving teaching, but you know struggling to be able to, you know find find a way that that can be rewarding financially can you talk about you know why you wanted to go to graduate school in the first place why you wanted to get a phd um, and then what ultimately led you to uh, decide to sort of exit off the the adjunct wheel as it were
3: yeah i mean i decided to go to grad school essentially because i had spent about seven years in the corporate world working in publishing and media and i was Um, somewhat disillusioned by the intellectual quality of discourse that happened there. Even though everybody that I worked with, literally everybody I worked with went to Princeton. I mean, every, like New York publishing houses, I went to Vassar and I was generally the, like, the, the safety school person in any conversation that I had. These were all people who at one point had been extraordinarily brilliant, but the trappings of corporate life just sucked that right out of them. I don't even blame them. And, you know, I just sort of had had one too many conversations about, this was the early 2000s, and so I'd had one too many conversations about carbohydrates, and I was just like, I can't take this
2: And, <laughs> oh my and God. so
3: I applied for a part-time program at NYU um, that was like generally, it was sort of an, a master's program for people who weren't sure they wanted to be in grad school, but who were sure they wanted to give NYU an immense amount of money, and um <laughs> And you got to take courses all around all the different programs in NYU. It was basically just like a sample grab bag of interdisciplinarity. And I actually really loved that program. I had an incredibly rewarding time and I learned all sorts of interesting things in history department, the religion department the German department, of course, the English department. I took all these courses, all these graduate level courses all over one of the great universities of the world. And I was kind of in love with the with the smartness of it. Um, because this was a non-funded MA program, it was completely disconnected from the more unsavory realities of academia. So I was, despite having to... PhDs as parents you know they did theirs in the 60s and 70s was completely different so their experience doesn't really bear out anything uh-huh, what's going uh-huh. on now anyway but I was extro- I shouldn't have been as naive as I was but I was extraordinarily naive thinking oh well PhD program is going to be just like this but somebody is going to pay me to do it how could I not want to do this and so then I applied to a bunch of PhD programs including of course the German program at NYU which did not let me in <laughs> which I'm very relieved about now because that of course is the program ended
2: up by Oh, no,
3: no. It's headed by Avital Ronell. And
2: um, oh, yeah, I've heard about I've heard about her scandal. Yeah,
3: I did not sufficiently cite the work of Avital Ronell in my application. So that is, I'm sure, one of the many reasons why I didn't get in. But I did get into a couple of pretty good programs. And, you know, they're both in California and they flew me out and it was the dead of winter. And it was like, you know, 68 degrees there and the sky was blue and they were all showering me you know when grad student recruitment is this ridiculous (laughs) they shower you in compliments and free food and they give you this funding package that looks like an immense amount of money although divided by you know six years five years it's not really (laughs) but um you know they say you're so smart we want you and no one had ever said that to me in my entire life and so i was like this is where i belong this is where i'm going to be and so um I ended up accepting admission to UC Irvine and going out there all alone. And, um, you know, it was difficult. It was extremely rigorous. And that's what I loved about it. I really loved having to push myself extremely hard to do something that did not involve carbohydrates or somebody else's bottom line. You know, I was just trying to get smarter about stuff that was intentionally very difficult and to me at the time addressed and answered some of the larger questions about the socio-political reality of the world which again this was the bush the bush years and so it was a lot of like walter benjamin and carl schmidt and
2: (laughs) yeah so this is a phd uh, PhD in in german correct
3: yeah this phd in german and um and so you know I chose a dissertation advisor based on somebody I really wanted to work with and really admired, but he was a non-tenured, you know, beginning assistant professor. So this was a snake number one. I did not choose somebody famous who could pull rank with his or her famous friends. And then the second thing I did was I chose a dissertation topic that was like really esoteric and completely detached from whatever was in vogue uh, in the discipline at the time. And so... Um, again because it was the hardest thing I could think to do and it was interesting to me and so um, when it was time for me to go on the market I had this nobody advisor and this completely wacky topic (laughs) and so this and also the uh financial crisis had just hit and so there was a just absolute cratering of jobs in my discipline so the combination of uh, a very good state school program but yet state school phd that doesn't look as good to administrators like everybody knows the uc irvine program in german was top it was top 10 program everybody in german knows that but people in the dean's office don't necessarily, if there's somebody from UC Irvine up against somebody from Harvard, despite the fact that UC Irvine's German program at the time I studied there was better than Harvard's German program, they would want to obviously want the person from Harvard. And so I had what is known as an off-brand PhD. I had this completely wackadoodle dissertation and this advisor who, I mean, I had some other people on my committee who were quite well known. And so they did the heavy lifting for me, but they weren't my, in German it's Dr. Vater or Dr. Mutter. They were not my doctor father. They were not the the person in whose life I was apprenticing. And so all of those combined with the fact that the market was just abysmal and I just completely struck out on the market um, two years in a row. And then the second year, I got um, this postdoc that was extraordinarily prestigious and was supposed to save me from obscurity and leaving the field. It was like specifically for promising scholars who were having bad luck on a market that was poor to like try to be a stopgap for them until the market came back. But so I was at Ohio State for, which is a really top program, for uh, two years. It was very rewarding, and I did get to feel sort of like a real professor for most of those two years but i was on the market again for the time that i was there and i got you know interviews and campus visits and stuff but it was just again such an incredibly competitive field
2: right right and uh, and well i i told you you're not making me feel good about my prospects because I love my my dissertation advisor, but she's also not extremely well known. And I'm from yeah. an, if you're from an off brand PhD, I'm from an off off brand because I'm not from a yeah. top ten program. <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, I'm just not from a top ten program anymore. The other thing that I guess I should mention, in case your listeners are like, Well, Schumann, you know, clearly wasn't very good, was that I had By the time I went on the market for the fourth year in a row, I had a book under contract that wasn't like a maybe contract. It was like a definite contract. And I had three articles out in top journals in my discipline. So I was that was my thought was that, okay, my advisor isn't super fancy. So I'm going to be extraordinarily well published. And so by the time I was on the market for the fourth time, I actually could have gone up for tenure. I could have just walked in and gone straight up for tenure anywhere um, if they would accept the work that I had done already. And uh, so. And I had, you know, a Fulbright grant and a German American no German Academic Exchange service is very prestigious in German Studies grant and all these other awards and fellowship. You know, I was not a slouch. Right, um, right. So I had hoped that my non slouchiness would stand out. But unfortunately, most people who <laughs> end up with PhDs are also not slouches. And you know, you'd also never know. You don't know what people are looking for and you don't know what they want. And they're, to say, like, oh, I didn't get a job because of something I did, gives me too much power. The reason I didn't get a job is because there were like 300 people applying for 10 jobs. Like, there's just the math is not. In your favor. And the same is true now. I'm still applying for those 10 jobs, but now I'm somewhat of a known quantity in German studies. But whether that is a positive or a negative, there very much depends on the personal makeup of the search committee.
2: Yeah. So I want to I want to ask a little bit, too, about your um you you do have a platform outside of german studies you've written prolifically for uh chronicle of higher education for slate for a lot of a lot of other you know non-necessarily specific um like academic journals and stuff Mm -hmm. more like a public public consumption um can you talk about what led you to uh find those venues for your writing and uh what you've done since you know sort of hopping off that job market for several years and and paving your own way and what you've been doing in that time
3: yeah i mean in certain respects i've been extraordinarily lucky because i did what a lot of people do i didn't realize this was like a well-torn path at the time i thought i was being really original because again i was super naive but when a lot of people when some people leave academia they use some of the skills that they gained in academia such as being able to write to write a screed about why they're leaving academia so i did that And um, I happened to know somebody who was at the time a senior editor and is now an even more senior editor at Slate. And so he had been sort of watching me implode. We were Facebook friends and he sort of watched me implode on Facebook. And he was like, you want to just take that implosion and put it, you know, cobble it together into twelve hundred words and then we'll publish it and give you two hundred fifty dollars. And I was like, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, I knew that that would make it so that I would have a Google problem with search committees in the future. But I did not think that like anybody more than like my parents and maybe somebody who Googled me and like five slate readers would read it, but it turned out to be the most talked about thing in academia
2: for like two weeks. And so- You really, um, really struck a chord, right?
3: Yes, and most of some of it was supportive, most of it was exceedingly negative. And um, that was sort of the beginning of the first phase of my post-academic life, which is that I kind of cleaved onto that negativity and doubled down, and I I had had a long, dormant blog, and I resurrected it with all these screeds about academia, and it really, um, you know, it hit. A lot of people were in the mood to read screeds about academia, either to be schadenfreude and revel in my pain, or to commiserate, and sort of that's what I became a little bit known for for a while and slate gave me a regular column provided that I continued to um, be as punchy as possible and you know put myself out there for the vultures and it was not a good time in my home life it had made made me very very unhappy and jumpy to have because if you are a internet writer and especially if you're a female internet writer I'm a white female internet writer so I even have it easier than a lot of people but you get immense amounts of um gendered vitriol from many many angle, corners of the of the world all day so i would get you know hate mail from seven different media and then you know twitter facebook etc people would find a way to hate mail me on all of those things and then i would also get like several messages a day from really pained academics who were having a really really hard time and you know I really appreciated them reaching out to me and but I felt for them and I felt their pain and it certainly didn't do much to help my own morale around the house and so uh when I got pregnant with my daughter I decided that I needed to not do that anymore I needed to I needed to write things because I'm a good writer I know I'm a good writer and um when I was pregnant I got my book deal and so that was really great because that was enough money so that I didn't really have to go back to, like, full-time work after my daughter was born. I could work at home and stay at home with her, save her home, tons of money on childcare, and also just, like, you know, be present uh, in her life and be really... Really present in my, in my family. And so when I did go back to writing after she was born, it was to write my book, which is was just, you know, it does have some stuff about academia in it, but it's mostly just humor. It's just like my misadventures in the German milieu. And then I went back to slate briefly, but I didn't really have the same fire. Like I wasn't really about to like come back at academia with a lot of piss and vinegar. I just didn't have it in me. And so I did try my hand for a little bit at writing about parenting, but it turns out that there's even more of like a nerve striking potential for that. Yeah, there's a lot more people writing about
2: parenting than there are people. A lot (laughs) lot more
3: people being really angry about the things that people write about parenting. And so there was one piece I wrote um, and it was so poorly received that I was death threatened by it. And so um, on the base, and you know, when you get death threats, and it's just you, that's bad enough. But when you get death threats, and you have a baby, like I had a seven month old baby at the time. So I was horrified. And so I just basically shut it down. And so I told Slate that I only wanted to write about like, Gymnastics and TV and they were like, well, you don't have a column anymore then (laughs) because that's not going to bring in the eyeballs But to this day, I still write for Slate. I don't have a regular column anymore But now I write about gymnastics and TV and books. I review books for them and I only write thoughtful work that I really care about And I don't get any hate mail because it doesn't really strike nerves Um, And then, you know, as I kept writing, I got better and my book did um, My book was Schadenfreude A Love Story available in paperback everywhere. Um, it was well-reviewed. It made a several best-of lists and stuff. And so, you know, it came out the year that Trump got inaugurated for president, so it wasn't ever going to be a bestseller because it was like, you know, the world became a dystopic, garbage dump on fire so that no one really wanted to read about a a middle-aged white woman with no real problems and I understand that but um but the book was well reviewed and continues to I get you know instead of getting hate mail or anguished letters from academics every day like every every week or so I get a letter from someone being like I read your book and it was really funny and that like means a tremendous amount to me because I worked extraordinarily hard on the book you know when my book advance money ran out that was when my life as a full-time writer was over so now i do all sorts of consulting i do all, i translate german to english my most of my bread and butter is translating and consulting and that allows me to write the things that i like to write at the speed and pace that i like to write them yeah i don't have the, oh, i don't have the audience i did when i was at slate you know being really punchy and getting people mad at me but i'm also a lot happier as a person and i wish that you could be happy as a person and successful as an internet writer at the same time but i truly believe that especially if you're a a white woman or a person of color of any gender that those things are mutually exclusive
2: Yeah. Um, Well, that's probably going to be a topic for a whole other show that we do. Uh, (laughs) But it sounds it sounds like, you know, at least at least your life, even, you know, there's been a lot of a lot of struggles with, you know, you went to a very prestigious school. Um, You've been working really hard and putting out a lot of material. And I guess, uh, do you think that um, like for anyone that does have a Ph.D., like having the Ph.D. will you know at least you know be a predictor of, of success if even if not in academia that you will be successful in other realms if you if you choose not to do to stay in the academy
3: Oh it depends on so much it really depends on so much there's no way to to say that in other countries absolutely in most countries in Europe people have doctorates all the time in all, like journalists have doctorates um and having a doctorate in what any discipline immediately makes you, uh, eligible for a higher classification of pay at any job that you
2: apply to. So what you're um, saying is I should Everybody to should Europe.
3: emigrate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, in, you know, in the United States, it's all over the place. Uh, I know, you know, there's always the, the great myth of the people who've removed the PhD from their resume because everybody thinks that they are stuck up or overqualified and stuff. Um. But on the other hand, I know of a lot of people who have gotten positions, you know, people from my disciplines, the humanities, get positions in museums, for example, other cultural institutions, cultural exchange institutions, think tanks, Uh, people in the social sciences, such as yourself, often go into NGOs, think tanks, theoretically into government when the government is different.
2: Yeah, but, that's, uh, that's something I probably couldn't do right now.
3: But I think that it really depends. If you are not done with your PhD yet, but it's chugging along okay, and you think that you can finish it without a, like a significant psychological uh, damage to yourself, then it's definitely better to finish than it is not to finish. If, however, it's hurting you and potentially killing you to be working on your PhD, there's also absolutely nothing even remotely wrong with walking away abd that's still better than most people ever did and so it really is a person by person situation then there are people who have like either they have corporate experience or they just have good hustle skills who are going to be fine no matter what and then there are people who might be the most brilliant people you've ever met but they you know they're potentially on the on the spectrum a little bit awkward or you know disabled in some sort of other way that makes it Um, that makes it a little difficult to hustle um, in the corporate world and they're not going to, you know, the world is stacked against them. And so it's super impossible to determine in any sort of general way. Right. What I wouldn't recommend is what I did, which is, you know, writing a very public thing about how much academia hurts you and then having to double down on that for an an indeterminate amount of years and and until you know, you realize that you can't sustain that anymore. I would not, I would recommend what I did behind the scenes, which was apply to consulting positions and translating positions and, you know, start doing those. <laughs> I would recommend the non-public writing version of my career path. Okay. Um, with the with the caveat that you will be chasing money <laughs> for, right. for the foreseeable future. And then right. it's very, very hard to get people to pay you.
2: That's that's I mean that's why the tenure track job is so appealing is that you know you'll be chasing a lot of yeah you'll be chasing a lot of other things but you won't be chasing the 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 you know base salary you won't be chasing the benefits though you'll have those yeah yeah so uh, I have one more question and uh, it's basically since you have sort of paved your own path and I I realize you you're describing that that path might go back into, the, into academia if you can find the right job, um, but what's been most fulfilling about the work that you do now?
3: Um, well, I really enjoy kind of blending all of the things that I studied together uh, and producing something that other people might enjoy. I like, you know, the 90s column that I write now, uses a large research component. And the only reason I know how to weave in things I've researched with the primary narrative of what I'm writing is from writing a dissertation. And so it's very rewarding to use those parts of my brain with something that, you know, the average journal article is read by three people. And like one of those people is the author of it. (laughs) And so it is immensely rewarding to be using the skills that I developed in graduate school, in a way that potentially other people enjoy.
2: Well, that's, that's great. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants their, everybody wants the stuff that they write to be read.
3: <laughs> yeah, I
2: guess. Ideally. So.
3: Well, I mean, that's a double-edged sword though. You want it to be read by, um, by the right people.
2: By fans, don't want, you, not by detractors.
3: <laughs> and by fans who actually are rooting for you. Not fan. Like I had a lot of people who, as long as I was like the voice of the, extremely disaffected failed academic were like hundred percent my stands but as soon as i didn't really want to do that anymore because it wasn't healthy for me they disappeared and you know i would be at signings for my own book and someone come up to me and be like oh i really liked your you know old slate writing and I
2: was like, great, thanks.
3: You to, know, I don't, be, I don't do that anymore. To, then, to be honest, that's how of, I
2: know about you. So And then um, sort
3: of look <laughs> at the book and look at me and not buy the book and walk away. Like, you know, that's not <laughs> it's not super fun because I have gotten a lot better since then. I'm a much better writer than I was. Uh, since my Well, they, they're probably
2: writing. adjuncts and they can't afford your book.
3: <laughs> no, they bought another book. In
2: oh, oh, boo.
3: And now my book's in paperback, and so anybody can afford it because, you know, there are used copies that you can get for like $2. So, and you can yeah. get it at your library,
2: too. You want to give one more plug for our listeners?
3: Yes. Schadenfreude, a love story, colon, me, uh, comma, the Germans, comma, and 20 years of uh, attempted transformations, awkward miscommunications, and humiliating situations that only they have words for. It is a very long title.
2: That is oh, a... It appropriate. is appropriate. In German, it would be all one word, right?
3: Exactly. And it's also um, a little bit of a goof at uh, academic paper titles.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, that's Oh, that's which is cool. like
3: sort of <laughs> clever thing, colon. And then like a three part list of really exacting
2: details. Yes, that's uh, that's a that's a paper. Um, that's a paper title spot on.
3: Yeah, but you know, there's enough red meat in there in the last half of the book for people who, like yourself, who prefer the post-academic writing, like that's in there too, but I hope that also there's some, you know, there's a good amount about the actual German authors and philosophers that I love to read in the book as well, so you sort of get, learn some stuff, and then also I hope there are some laughs. I mean, I consider myself primarily a humorist. So I always have, and even my angriest post-academic stuff for Slate was supposed to be funny. Um, but it's possible that I have more of a German sense of humor, where you know people think that that's a misnomer, but it's not. It's just that German sense of German humor is extraordinarily dark, and so it's possible that I just sort of, you know, my way of being funny is to say the most tragic thing possible and then like laugh a little bit. <laughs>
2: Yeah, no, I have definitely found that to be the case in in the columns that I've read of yours. Uh, well, that's all I have. Uh, okay. I want to thank you, Dr. Schumann, for uh, being on being on our podcast.
3: Of course, um, I hope the podcast is super successful, and then you become an incredibly in demand international podcaster, and then you can a- employ a bunch of PhDs to work at your podcast.
2: Oh, that's the that's the dream.
3: All right. <laughs>
0: Well, that was uh, fantastic listening to dr schumann talk about her experience and now i think we need to follow her advice and become internationally recognized podcast stars and employ a ton of phds and pay them an actual good wage so all right amazing. step one
2: create the vision step two question mark Step three, profits. Yes.
0: Yep. <laughs> so let's just figure out what that question mark is, shall we? But
2: for yeah, right now, yeah, we can, I know.
0: you know, be unicorns and dream and believe.
2: Uh, yeah. So, uh, what other thoughts do you have? What struck stuck out to you from that interview?
1: So I think at first I was like, "Holy smokes! How do any of us have any chance in hell of doing anything?" Which was not her intention. But I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier is that I think in some ways it's a failure of us not being able to think outside the box because I do think there's all these great opportunities out there we just you know get so stuck in this sort of lane that we sort of miss the forest for the trees and so I really liked her throwing suggestions out there and you know talking about her life and I can't wait to read this book. Oh, yeah. It sounded so cool. I know.
0: Well, and I I felt the same way listening. I kind of was thinking, I was kind of getting a little bit of dread while well, listening to her talk about her career. But and then I actually started to think, why am I experiencing that dread? Yeah. And it's because there isn't, when there isn't a clear path to take, um, it sometimes seems as so though there's no path to take. But really, there's so much out there that academics can do and give to and take part in and be very good at. Um, It just takes some craftiness sometimes.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, I agree with that.
0: Like my husband went to law school to become a lawyer. He is now a lawyer. It's very clear. Though, I also recognize for everyone who goes for a JD, it is not always that clear, and the job market in many states is also very, very bad for lawyers. So recognizing that, like, he went path, 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 path. Like, that's Mm -hmm. that's step, step, step. That's what he did. It feels like it should be that way for academics, but it's not. Mm -hmm. And the part that we get stuck up on is we don't know how to be crafty.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, part of it depends on the field, too, you know, and we're both in the, you know, uh, humanities, social sciences, uh, but for, you know, engineers and uh, and plant scientists, and I think I've said this before on the podcast, that, you know, sometimes it's a little clearer for them, you know, there's a clear path into, um, into, you know, uh, the corporate realm, Mm -hmm. uh, rather than, you know, depending on, depending on what particularly they're doing. But there's a clearer path into the uh, the corporate realm.
0: Oh, I can absolutely say that is true as, as my sister is a PhD in engineering.
1: I also liked when she was talking about kind of not sinking on a ship just because this is a ship you originally picked. You know, when she was talking about yeah, if you're not in love with the work you're doing and you're ABD, like walk away, like find something that you do love. And I I love that because so for so long I think that was like my view was like once I started the PhD program, it was like if I am still physically able, no matter how much I hate it, I'm finishing this thing. And so it really wasn't until I saw other people kind of like walking away And just like making other choices for themselves. Was I like, oh, okay. Like I have so much respect for people who, you know, are in a program for a little bit and are like, this isn't for me. And like, there's nothing wrong with not, you know, wasting time doing something you don't want to do. And this is a lot of work. This is a lot of resources for a lot of people. This is, you know, putting your family on the line. This is moving away from friends. This is a total time suck. Um, And so I really respect people who are able to make this decision and and leave.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you, when you think about it, you have to, and I've thought about this as well, you have to think what is actually going to fulfill my life? Mm-hmm. Is this the path that's going to bring me the most happiness, the most enjoyment? Is it going to give me personal fulfillment in the work that I'm doing? The people I'm around, et cetera. Right. I, I really like what you said about sinking on the ship that we originally picked because maybe maybe we got on the wrong ship at first.
1: Yeah, you know, we sent a like, lifeboat and you don't yeah. you're like, no, sorry. I got I on actually, this ship I, first.
0: I actually meant to be on that <laughs> ship over there. I really don't like where this ship yeah. is going. And that's not a bad thing, and that is and just because you're leaving something doesn't mean you failed at it. Because maybe you just weren't happy. And happiness is important, fulfillment is important. And um, it filled you. yeah yeah. And um, a, a friend recently invited me to um, a Facebook group called Academics Say Goodbye. Um, she said this might be interested to you because of the podcast and also we had been talking recently about academia and feeling fulfilled and stuff like that. And there are a lot of people in this group who are talking about how they're just you know tired of, the fight to get a position that's not necessarily going to make them happy or they're giving up or putting off being happy or fulfilled for this you know mystical tenure track position And i know they're not mystical i know they exist
2: i'll uh i also have a recommendation for people that are considering um you know looking at uh, the experiences of other people that have left uh, Recovering Academic. It's another podcast, also uh, three hosts, but they are all in STEM fields. Um, and so I've listened to several episodes of that, and they had a, a I was talking about this earlier, a little clearer path into uh, into into the corporate realm, um, but they were all so invested in their in their academic careers in the same way that, that we are, and, and all hit different breaking points uh, for different reasons.
1: So I have to go back and like address something that we talked about at the very beginning so you asked if I'd ever thought about quitting and you said you think about it once a semester and I want to make clear that I also think about it once a a semester usually it's like you know three quarters of the way you know when it's done and like everything's piling up and you're like what am I doing I could have delivered mail for a living um you know not that that's not not that it's so easy but you know, something that you can, like, leave at the end of the day and not really think about. So I wanted to tell you that I, too, do feel like that. But I think when I said last semester in particular, was the only time I've ever given it, like, considerable thought, where it was, like, where I let it get beyond, like, oh, you're, like, this is just distress stress talking. So last semester was really difficult. Um, I don't have any plans to quit. I still really enjoy it. And... I'll, you know, come what may, I've also told, you know, my advisor knows this, and we've talked a lot about this, that I don't want to limit myself in any way. So in terms of like going on the job market, which is I'll probably start looking in the summer, Um, I just want to be open to any opportunity. So I'm not necessarily only applying to colleges and universities. I just want to see what all is out there. And I'm in this like interesting position, kind of like Zach is, where You know, I'm single. I don't have a family Um, like I do have a family, but you know what I mean? I don't have like family that are dependent on me financially or anything like that. And um, this is the sort of time in my life where I could, you know, go wherever. And so I want to be open to anything. So I guess I'm I'm in, but I'm also open. What about you, Zach?
2: uh well i'm on the job market i don't think i want to go uh on the job market a fourth time like dr schumann was was talking about i'm on it for the second time and uh yeah i mean if i if i don't land something this year i'm going to give it some real serious consideration mm-hmm. about what uh else i could be doing um eh, but like i said i consider it from time to time over and over and over And I keep coming back to it because it feels like the most comfortable uh, ship to sail on. Uh, It's hard to abandon.
1: Yeah.
0: This episode is brought to you by Cheese. The academic life is hard, stressful, and often unrewarding, and that's why the powers that be invented cheese. Call it divinely inspired, or just being the best thing science has to offer to the human palate, but cheese makes the academic's life just a little bit better. Sorry to all of our vegan and lactose intolerant friends, but make sure your fridge is fully stocked with cheese today.
2: (laughs) I know mine is.
0: Actually, I don't know if we have that much cheese right now. We're going to go to the uh, store and get some cheese. Cheese deficit. Cheese deficit. <laughs> deficit.
2: <laughs> You're letting our sponsors down. I Rich.
0: know.
1: Here I'm promoting cheese. Don't even have cheese. Okay, guys. What do you have on the horizon for self-care?
2: Ooh, ooh, Zach first. Zach go first. Ahead, Zach. Oh, my roommate got a pool table.
1: How fun.
2: Yeah. So my self-care this week and for weeks into the foreseeable future will be playing pool, either uh, practicing by myself or playing against him. It's uh it's going to be super fun.
0: That sounds awesome. I really suck at pool, but you can get really really good at it and then maybe you can do some of those yeah. trick shots and stuff.
2: Yeah, next time I'm in town, I'll I'm sure I'll know how to do trick shots. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. We'll we'll see.
1: When I was little, my dad had a pool table and I would make forts out of it. <laughs> really?
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's multi-purpose. Exactly. So
1: if all goes bad, you can always make a fort. My self-care this week I think I talked about this last week but I've been doing really good with managing and like writing um my time really well and my planner like scheduling like actual times with myself to do things and I did it all last week and it worked out so well and I even scheduled like time to read a book and you know time to you know walk my dog and stuff like that and so that really made my week super smooth so I'm hoping to kind of double down on that and then as far as self-care I, Hmm. My friend just gave me access to his Movies Anywhere app that was awesome, <laughs> and made me a oh profile, boy. so I am probably going to be perusing his movie collection, so I'm sure that I'll watch some films for my self-care. Shout out to good buddies who give you access to their apps.
0: Well, for my self-care, um, we've actually got to spend a little bit of time recently with friends. Uh, this past weekend, we went away to a wedding and got to see not only those folks, but some lovely friends who let us stay with them and their adorable, fantastic daughter and two lovely cats. And so we got to you know just have some really good time talking and laughing and enjoying each other's company. And so I feel I feel kind of rejuvenated from that. It was really, really nice
2: to nice. see some nice. people that I don't yep.
0: see all the time. It was really, really nice. You
2: sound like you're healthier since we recorded our last episode, too. Yeah, How my voice you feel is it back.
0: And... My voice is almost back. I can almost hear out of my left ear, which was been all like clogged up and stuff from being stuffy, and I almost have normal energy. i would about to say I'm like eighty. I'm like an eighty percent. So you know, I'm a solid B minus right now, and uh,
1: I'm hoping to get that A. Eighty percent. If you were my iPhone battery, oh. I wouldn't be freaking out right now. <laughs> I would be like solid, like I can do whatever <laughs> I want today. I can go today. for days, exactly. Actually, saying, I can go for hours <laughs> because it's Apple, right?
2: You are both one hundred percent A's in my book. Aww. So, well, you're
1: a fantastic guy in my book. So thank you all for listening. Feel free to tweet us, Facebook us, comment on the webpage, or send us an email with suggestions about show topics or feedback on what we're doing and how we're doing.
0: Yeah, and until next time, keep Keep on on surviving.
2: surviving! Potatoes and, potatoes and molasses. That's what you should watch on your new uh, movie app. Over the garden You're Wall. right. You're right. Yeah. And that song will be stuck in your head for months on end, like it is that just mine. Sounds
0: like the most disgusting thing. What? Give me some. Give me some gravy on some potatoes, not some molasses. It's like
1: sweet and potatoy. Well, yeah, but I'm thinking of like, okay, follow me here. Like a McDonald's hash brown with like like syrup on it. Seems like it could be like a good idea. Except for like a sweet, salty, even though it's or, molasses,
2: or like just tra- French fries with barbecue sauce—that's molasses-based.
0: Yeah, but it also has some spices and stuff in it. That's got chili in it. Molasses it's, ain't got yeah, chili in it. Yeah,
2: that's true. <laughs> so it wouldn't be bad. You're it like, would just very,
1: be incomplete. Like, from, you're like molasses ain't got chili in it. <laughs> You're like so defensive molasses. Like this is like a playground little kid's street fight, and you're like, My friend molasses doesn't do that. <laughs> she has spices. You don't know because we're not
0: friends. You can't even be in the same molasses can't even be in the same realm as my barbecue sauce. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know what that was.
2: I'm glad we can all agree that the potatoes are not at fault here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, exactly. If you were to ask Justin, he hates potatoes, so he would be like, "That's at fault because wow. they're potatoes."
2: I know. wow. I and you still I, married you, him. Wow, you are really good. He must have a lot of other good qualities to be able to overlook that.
1: No joke. He must be a really good <laughs> lawyer for him to convince her that that is not a huge character flaw. <laughs> I
3: <laughs> don't <laughs>